want to continue speaking about revival this morning. And um, I just want to say this. I'm aware that I am intense and I am uh, loud and sometimes can be over-intense. But I want to say this. I, I never want this thing of revival to become like something that we get all like that about. You understand what I'm saying? I really trust, what I'm trying to do is just to encourage you in terms of your thinking, in terms of your own walk with Jesus and your own desire for Him. And so I want to look this morning at how prayer and revival work together. And this is all in the context of our study of James. And remember, in James, we were doing this series called um, Dazzling Christianity. We are certainly going to get back to that. But I want to just launch off again this morning around the theme of prayer, and I've called it Armor Bearers for Prayer. Armor Bearers in Prayer. And we're going to, you'll see why I've chosen that title later. But I just want to kick off in uh, James chapter 4, and it says in James chapter 4, we've read it before, I want to read it again. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. God wants us to ask Him in prayer. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly and you spend it on your own passion. And so James is saying to us, even sometimes when we ask in prayer, we ask with the wrong motive and we don't ask according to God's heart. And as we ask wrongly, we don't receive what we're asking for. And so... I'd like to launch from that place this morning and just do a two-minute refresher of the last couple of weeks in terms of what I've been speaking through, and then I want to launch into this thing of prayer and revival. How does it work, all right? So the theme is revival, and we've been looking at the revival, define it, how do we understand it, uh, why we need it, how it comes, what characterizes it, and I said last week that surely we are all in desperate need of personal revival. And I say that standing as, as one who's leading this congregation along with the team. Yeah, I need revival in my own life. I need God to do something in my life. And so this is not a criticism. This is a desire of more, wanting more in God for my own life. And uh, surely this church needs revival. Surely we need revival, every one of us in this congregation. We desperately need revival to come upon this congregation. And we need the overflow of that to go into the surrounding community and transform the community. And so I try to have a look at the different stories out of church history to encourage you. And uh, last week we had a look at the life of Hezekiah. Hezekiah is an amazing king. And if you read the story of the kings, there's always a king that does well and uh, the life, spiritual life of Israel is good. And then a king takes over and atrophy sets in and the life of, of Israel and Judah has these highs and these lows. It's like a wave that goes like this. And if you read through Kings, it says one king did well and another king didn't do well. And it goes like this forever and a day, it seems. And we had a look at Hezekiah. And he, he together with Solomon, remember I looked at Ecclesiastes 3.14, which said, uh, God has put eternity in the hearts of men. And Solomon dis discovered that for himself. And, and so did Hezekiah. He understood that the real issue was about eternity. It was about how we see God. It wasn't about this temporal world. It wasn't about the here and now. It wasn't about just eking out a survival now. It's about eternal things. And I said to you 
That's one of the great things that is rediscovered when the church goes into periods of revival, is that people start to discover for themselves again eternal issues. That it really is about eternity. It's not about now. And I, I understand it might have been challenging. <laughs> Some of the things I said, where I said, let's, let's be careful how many hours of television we watch. 61 days, I think I said. And then we come to church and we, if you add up how many hours we sit under the Word, it's probably 25 hours a year, one day. This is not a criticism. This is to help us think a little bit differently, to start thinking for eternity. What are we spending our time, investing our time in? Having said that, I did get up at 4 o'clock this morning to watch Wales, all right? So, but then I prayed after that. <laughs> and so I, I try to encourage you, let's start, let's start living from a place of eternal motivation. Treasure in heaven, not treasure on earth. And I, and I understand that that can be challenging. And so I said to you, let's begin to trust God this year. Trust God for eternity in our meetings. And I want to say to you, I felt something of eternity in the worship this morning. Just as the guys were playing, God was with us. Can we trust for something of eternity in our conversations? Eternity in our friendships? Eternity in how we use our time? Eternity in how we invest our money? What we're giving our money to? That it's got eternal significance. And I asked you last week, can we do that? Can we say, Lord Jesus, it might be a journey, but we, we're going to embark on this journey together. And we as a leadership team of this church, we are committed to a journey of the Word and the Spirit and how those two things work and flow together. To all that the Holy Spirit has for us in power and all that is based for us being rooted in the Word. All right? So I just want to, as we look at this thing of prayer, I want to just as a kind of introduction, have a look at what kind of people God uses in revival, because I think that's quite helpful. And already we've, we've, um, we've uh, investigated something of Hezekiah. What kind of people does God use in revival? Well, Brian Edwards says this, revival starts with those who in bad times remain good. In godless days remain Christian. In careless years remain constant and who live with eternity in their hearts. I love that. Revival starts with those who in bad times remain good and godless days remain Christian. You might feel that all of society is unchristian. It doesn't matter. Revival starts with those in godless days remain Christian. In careless years, those who are flippant and careless about the kingdom, revival starts with those who are constant in those times, who are steadfast, who having done all, stand. And that's got, been God's great encouragement to this church over the last couple of years. When you have done all, when you can do no more, stand and see the salvation of God come. And they have eternity in their hearts. And, and quite frankly, that's someone like Hezekiah, isn't it? And um, I said to you last week, he saw the true state of the nation. He saw the true state of the church. Remember I said Judah is a picture of the church. And that we sometimes put things onto the nation that are actually meant for the church. <laughs> and much of Isaiah's prophecy into, into, the, into uh, that situation was into the church. And he says, no, no, you, God's finger's pointing at you, the church. Come on now. God has something for you. And so often we like to um, put those things, deflect them onto the nation. And, uh, God is speaking to the church. God always starts with the church. And the amazing thing about Hezekiah is that God always brings revival with those who care. Who care enough 
who care enough about the state of the church and who care enough about the state of the nation to say, I'm committing myself to do something. And if you look at the history of the Old Testament and the New Testament, at every major junction point of of the history of Israel, God raises up particular people, particular men, and sometimes women, to do something through their lives. And so I can just give you a couple of examples. Men like Abraham, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, Gideon, Samuel, David, Daniel, Nehemiah, the prophets. That's a few. And in the, in the New Testament, Jesus chooses what? He chooses men, 12 disciples, and through those 12 disciples sent under, out under the power of the Holy Spirit, the church is birthed. And the New Testament is this amazing tapestry of God's sovereign move by the power of the Holy Spirit working through individuals. And it's a tapestry of names. People like Peter and John, Philip and Stephen, Paul and Silas, Barnabas, John Mark, Priscilla, Aquila, many others that are not named but are there. And I don't know why God does that, but He chooses, and in, in, in terms of how He builds His church, He prepares particular people, and He says, I've got a task for you to do, and they cooperate with the Holy Spirit, and amazing things are, happened, are birthed into the community. And if we look at the history of revival, it's the same. God prepares particular people. I don't know why He does it. It's His pattern. It's His way. I, I want to say to you as God's part of God's church, the best thing we can do is to ask God to prepare those people, the men that He needs for today, to, to ensure that revival comes and the church is built today. God, please prepare those people. And I want to suggest to you some of, the, some of them might be sitting in this congregation. Those that God wants to use to revive His church and to build His church and to bring people back and call the burnt stones back into relationship with Him. And it's true in the story of revival. And I've mentioned some of these names before. 250 years ago, it was people like John and Charles Wesley, George Whitfield. There was a guy called Howell Harris who lived in the UK and ministered here, as well as a guy called Daryl Rowland. How many of you have heard of Count von Zinzendorf, a nobleman? From Saxony in Germany, he was another man used amazingly. There was a guy called Hans Haug in, in Norway was used. And then across the Atlantic in, in um, America, there was Jonathan Edwards. And I discovered there's this guy called David Brainerd. He was a tuberculosis sufferer. He was a very frail man. And he chose to go to the North American Indians, or Native North Americans. Let me be politically correct here. First generation Americans, whatever you want. And he ministered and they saw revival in, 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 in Indian tribes. And then coming back here, we could also uh, mention people like um, Duncan Campbell in Scotland, um, Robert Murray McShane, people like Dwight Moody, Charles Spurgeon, who I mentioned, who ministered in London. 6,000 people. Every Sunday, listen to him. Do you want to get a context for that? Have any of you watched the, par- the, the proms at St. Albert's Hall? That is 6,000 people. Every weekend, Charles Spurgeon preached to 6,000 people. It's brilliant. It's in the history of our nation. It is fantastic. It should inspire us to say, God, you can do it again. And so what characterized these particular men that God chooses well? All of them. Whether it's Daniel, whether it's John Rowland, whether it's David Brown, all of them had an incredible personal experience of God. 
God radically impacted their hearts, and as God radically impacted their hearts, they had a burning desire for the glory of God, for the, for the, the passion of the kingdom in their lives. They were absolutely transfixed with that. And there was a desire in them to live a holy and a pleasing life. Holiness was a big, big issue for them. Not out of a drivenness, but out of because they loved God with all of their hearts. And I want to say to you, every move of God, every revival has been characterized by people saying, I want to live a holy life. And for me, it's a big factor when we look at so-called revivals. Is there, is there holiness accompanying it? Or is the guy run off with his secretary? I want to say to you that some of the good people that God prepares are not chocolate box, airbrushed models. In fact, the Bible speaks very little and about the physical appearance of people that God uses. And many of them have been unattractive people. <laughs> Why do I say that? Well, there were those that in Corinth, they absolutely despised Paul. And I mean despised. They did not like Paul. He was a short little man who couldn't see. And they said this of him, his letters are weighty and strong, and in his, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. That's what it says in 1 Corinthians. They dismissed him. They made fun of him. They made fun of his person. They made fun of his preaching. And even though we know that the scripture also says in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 4, when Paul preached, there was a demonstration of God's power. People changed when he preached. And so they made fun of Paul. Oh, he's this short little ignorant Jewish man who can't even see, dismissed him. How many of you know that the famous preacher George Whitfield was also mocked? I read a thing where they, they actually, someone actually, while he was preaching, they weed on him. Yeah, in, in the commons in London. And why did they make fun of him? Because he had a squint. His eyes went like this. And so they dismissed George Whitfield as the cross-eyed preacher. What good can he be? And yet thousands were saved. I read an article of John Wesley where they said, this guy was coming to meet John Wesley, and they said, he just looked like a farmer's son. He just looked like someone from the fields, John Wesley. And yet when he preached, power came. And God came. God uses unqualified people who the world dismisses and says they are useless. They are, they, they are the dregs of the world. Well, God takes the foolish things to show his glory in terms of the kingdom. And I want to say, that even though revival does begin with the faithful testimony of some good few men, along the way, many others quickly join as God starts doing, doing things in people's hearts. And this is especially true in this area that I want to look at this morning of prayer, becoming armor bearers in prayer. And it, revival doesn't start with just the result of a few people praying. There are people that God stirs their hearts, and I can point you to, for example, in the Hebrides revival of two old ladies that, that prayed for years, and then they asked uh, Campbell Morgan to come, and he didn't want to even want to come. Duncan Campbell, he didn't even want to come, but he came anyway, and God used the prayers of those two old ladies. But there are generally in revivals, a few start praying, and then they are joined by hundreds and thousands who are salt heaven in constant prayer until God comes down. And I want to point you to the great revival, revival in America in 1857. There was a little-known missionary in New York, a city missionary called Jeremiah Lanfer. And he decided to call some businessmen together to pray. 
And so he booked this place in, in Fulton Street. And he booked this place and he, he turned up for the meeting. Half an hour, no one came. No one came. And he was discouraged. He was just about to leave. Two men walked in. And they prayed for 15 minutes and another two walked in. By the end of the, the hour together, six of them had prayed. Six of them had prayed. And this started a, a chain reaction. Within six months, 10,000 businessmen were praying together, praying for revival in New York. And within six months, 10,000 came. And within two years, it is claimed that there were two million converts throughout America because one man decided, I'm going to do something. And he was joined by five others. And suddenly the five became 10,000. God did an amazing work in Fulton, Fulton Street through people who were prepared to go through the discipline of praying. What else about these people? Well, there's an urgency in terms of how they pray. There's, there's a boldness in their prayer. They're not flippant anymore. They're not careless about the things of God. The things of God count. The things of God are of great importance to them. And there's a boldness. There's an urgency. There are people like Hezekiah. And Sennacherib, if you read the story in 2 Kings, he's the king of Assyria. He comes and he threatens the city. And, 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 and Hezekiah is the king. And this is what he does. The first thing that he does is he starts to cry out in, in prayer to God. And he says this, O Lord God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are God. You alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth, and incline your ear, O Lord, and hear, and open your eyes. Lord, see, hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock you, the living God. So now, Lord, save us, please, from his hands, that all the kingdoms of the earth might know that you are God, and you are God alone. 2 Kings 19, verse 15. There's a great confidence in him. There's a great boldness to ask. There's an urgency in him. It's the first place he goes is to God and say, God, for your reputation, I'm pleading that you come down and you deal with this king, Sennacherib. And we had it in the prayer meeting this morning. I was delighted when Mike started praying Daniel's prayer. Didn't know what I was going to preach. Daniel's another example of an amazing prayer warrior. <laughs> in the, now I'm getting intense, so, so let me relax. Daniel 9, 17. Without reservation, he boldly comes. He confesses his sin. And when you read his story, it's not even that he sinned. It's the nation that has sinned. And he takes that upon himself and he boldly confesses it. He says, God, we have sinned. I have sinned. And he says, therefore, O, 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 o Lord our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O oh God, incline your ear and hear, open your eyes and see our desolation and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness. Even Daniel knew the grace of God. He knew it. Saved under the law. How do you work that out? Well, it's true. And perhaps we'll have a look of, uh, over the next years ahead how that is possible. But he was saved, this man. Because of your grace, mercy, O Lord. Not because of our righteousness, but because of your grace, mercy, O Lord. O Lord, hear and forgive, pay attention and act. Do not delay for the sake of your people. Because your city and your people are called by your name. There's a desperation in him. There's a boldness in him. There's an urgency in him to pray. And we see the same story in Acts, don't we? Acts chapter 2. The church is 
persecuted, it's dispersed, it is discouraged. And it starts with a quotation of Psalm 2. It says, why do the nations rage and plot in vain? And what, is the, what do they pray? As this opposition is coming against them, they cry to God and they say, and now, Lord, look upon the threat of, of the, these threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with great boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and to bring signs and wonders performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. What I'm trying to say to you, my friends, this morning, is that in those situations, those three examples I've given you, two in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament, when there was crisis, prayer was not an option. It was an absolute necessity for them. It wasn't optional. It was like, we'll do all this stuff, and then just as a tag along the end, we will pray. The first place they go is they pray. It's their first port of call. And I want to say this to you. When you look at the Greek in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, Acts chapter 2, verse 42, and Acts 6, verse 4, there's a definite article, which is, which is alongside the word, which means this. It means it's got an implication of praying together. They devoted themselves to the prayer. In other words, the prayer of the congregation. Praying together corporately, the whole church, and I want to say it challenges again our highly individualistic community and society, which says, I will pray happily for myself. And I'll perhaps get together with my mates and pray for me and my mates and our needs. We will do that. What they did was they cared enough to pray for the whole church. And the whole church got together to pray because they valued it. And it was their first port of call. I want to encourage you that this year, the primacy of our hearts becomes an attitude of prayer. So the question is this. Does prayer bring revival? <laughs> or is prayer the result of revival? Well, I think it's both and. Because undeniably, in the, the reading that I've been doing, in the study that I've been doing, it, it seems that prayer is the inevitable result of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and it's also the single most significant cause of the Holy Spirit coming down. Prayer. And when you read the story of Hezekiah, 2 Chronicles 29, verse 3, the first thing that he did as king was to reopen the doors of the temple, to repair the doors of the temple. Why? Because within the temple was the Holy of Holies. And what happened in the Holy of Holies is once a year, the priest would come, the high priest would come, he would offer sacrifices, and he would offer up prayers for the nation. Hezekiah knew what the problem was. The problem was prayerlessness. And I know we are saved by a great high priest. I'm not saying we need to go back to the old covenant at all. I'm not saying that. But it is a picture for us of what God wants to speak to us about. And I want to say to you the same problem that Hezekiah faced in Judah is the same problem that the church faces today. It is one of prayerlessness. Prayerlessness. People don't pray. I oh, don't put legalism on, on, on me, Ant. Well, I want to say to you, if, if we're not going to pray, the Bible says in James 4, if we do not ask, we will not receive. I want to ask for the Holy Spirit every opportunity I have that He would pour Himself out. I want to trust that this church is going to be revived this year. I'm going to ask, I'm going to keep on asking until it is revived. And it's good, but we want more. And I'm going to trust that we keep on asking for this community, that the church is revived in this community. 
I said also in the prayer meeting, what happens if we are praying for revival and it breaks out in city church down the road? Hallelujah. <laughs> what happens if we pray for revival and the vineyard explodes and it becomes a church of 5,000? Will we be happy? Is it about the kingdom? Because I was thinking, maybe we ask for revival, and we're going back to that portion in James, which says, you, have, you ask, but you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives. Well, perhaps, perhaps we want revival just to see our church grow. Perhaps there's something in me that wants to see revival because it'll vindicate my theological position. Then I can say, see, I am right. Look, revival is here. Or perhaps it's just people want to feel a touch of God, you know, and that's not a bad thing. I'm not saying these things are bad things to want to see the church grow. What I am saying is they are essentially revival for my sake. Revival for our glory, not revival for His. You know, in Acts chapter 2, when they were up in the upper room and the Holy Spirit was poured out, do you want to think about what situation they were in? They were absolutely desperate. Jesus had left. He had gone, ascended into heaven. They were under pressure from the Romans. They were under pressure from the Jews. They are locked away, 120 of them. They are locked away in this room upstairs somewhere. And they are cowering. And it's at that moment of desperation that God chooses to pour out the Holy Spirit upon them. I don't know why, but I think perhaps something of it was they were absolutely desperate for God to do something. I want to ask you, are we absolutely desperate? Or is it perhaps that we really are still quite self-satisfied? And I don't say this in a critical way at all. I just say, uh, you know, every summer we enjoy these amazing festivals in the UK. And there are their music festivals and there are also the Christian festivals. And all the Christians go off and they get their, 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 their yearly dose of encouragement. And I think that's a, prof- a wonderful thing. I want all the kids next year to go off to Soul Survivor because they need to be encouraged. But you know, sometimes I think that that can, that can also, it can camouflage the real issue. And the real issue is that most of the church is prayerless. <laughs> and I include myself in that. Are we desperate? Are we confident? Are we saying, God, we will, we will pray until we see you come. We will pray until we see you break through. There, there's, a, there's a symbiotic relationship I want to talk about as I'm trying not to go on too long this morning. There's a symbiotic relationship between leaders and people, between those that are head of the congregation and the congregation. For As I've been think, uh, pr- uh, thinking about this and preparing, there's definitely amongst the leaders, there's an unyielding prayer in the leaders that God uses in terms of revival. And I want to say that there has to be in us, those that are, are part of leading God's church all over, there has to be a confident expectation that he, he is going to come. There has to be a place in us that we get to where we can say, God, we are confident that you're going to come. I'm not even saying I'm at that place yet. But I read the story this week that actually challenged me. William Bramwell was a Wesleyan minister who preached in the first 20 years of the 19th century. And he was trusting God for revival. And he was praying for revival, and he was trusting, 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 and it hadn't come. But then in 1792, he points to this, and I'm quoting from his diary, he points to this, this time, and he says, I was praying in my room. I received an answer from God in a particular way, and had the revival discovered in me in, a manner, in its manner and effects. I had no more doubt. 
All my grief was gone. I could say, the Lord will come. I know he will come. And suddenly, he had in the place of prayer so brought his doubts to God, so brought his anxieties to God, his, his, all that stuff that goes on inside of us all the time. And he came to a point in his own personal prayer where, I like I always say, he knew in his Noah. He knew in his Noah that it was coming and it was, nothing could take it away. And then it came. And the point is, I suppose, that God frequently brings us all to a place of desperation before he does anything because he wants every one of us to know that without him, we can do nothing. And there's the great story of John Wesley in Fetter Lane. Fetter Lane, you can visit it down in London. And I'm quoting from his diary again. He was there with his brother Charles and George Whitfield, and he says this, about three in the morning, three in the morning, about three in the morning. I'm not sure how long it was. My friends, when we get together to pray and it's more than an hour, we're like exhausted. Yeah, these guys are at about three in the morning. He's not even sure when it is. About three in the morning, as we were continuing in prayer, the power of God came upon us mightily in so much as some, in, some, some cried out for exceeding joy. There's like this demonstration of the Holy Spirit and some are just exceedingly joyful and loud and it says others fell to the ground. As they pray, God is there manifestly. He is there. I always like to tease my dad because he's a Methodist. You get any Methodist falling down in a meeting now, it would be like excommunicate that person from the church. What is this sign here? I know I'm being naughty. But it is a bit like that, isn't it? When Wesley preached, people fell out of the trees. They did. Under the power of God. Jonathan Edwards said this. Remember, he's the guy from America. He said, it's through intimacy in heaven that men are made great blessings in the world. It's through intimacy in heaven. When God knows us through our prayer life, we become great blessings here in the world. And his congregation in New England that he led, for 10 years they experienced revival and part of their lifestyle was a disciplined example of praying. And I just want to say to you, I reject this thing completely outright, that discipline is legalism. It's not. Discipline is not legalism. It depends what motivates you. When I look at the history of the church, the people that God used were passionate, disciplined, focused men and women that will give anything to see his kingdom come. It requires discipline. It's not the same as legalism. They were prepared to do anything to see God come and move in power. And so, the challenge is, guys, are we prepared to change our diaries to make space for this unnoticed work of assaulting the heavens in prayer? Are we prepared to change our diaries? See, I mean, Hezekiah was the guy that opened the doors that his father had shut. He opened the doors of the temple. I, I would be like to be known as someone that opens the doors of the temple again. Can I maybe suggest to you that sometimes our absence of prayer is the equivalent of shutting the doors in the temple? And I want to ask you, when there's a problem in your life, when there's a problem in your family, when there's a challenge at work, what is your first port of call? Is it this? to think out some strategic plan of how you're going to solve the problem? Is it to pick up the phone and speak to your best mate and ask him what he thinks? Is it through a conversation with one of the elders? Or is it through a place of prayer where you seek God and say, Lord Jesus, I need you to help me right now. 
So there's this thing of leaders that are bold and are going for it in prayer. But then there's the symbolic relationship of the congregation too. And there's a constant prayer of expectant people. <laughs> expectant people. And it's not just the responsibility of leadership. Here's the thing. Ladies, you're at the back with babies. Do you want to listen up now? Because here's the thing for you. Joel chapter 2, verse 15. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children. Oh, no. We our children are too young to pray. Gather the children. Even nursing children. Oh, we don't like that. Even the ones still on the breast, gather them as well. Let the bridegroom, <laughs> the one just about to get married, let the bridegroom leave his room. Let the bride leave her chamber. Why? Because between the vestibule and the altar of the priests, the ministers of the Lord, they weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage approached by a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the people, Where is their God? There's a call upon the whole congregation to come and pray. Young ones, old ones, elders, children, nursing children, come and pray. Incredibly challenging, isn't it? So then I want to say, say to you, perhaps, perhaps that uh, in this year we're going to have to change some of our regular programs, something of our lifestyle to pray. And I think something of the first glint, the first little, first little taste that revival is coming is that people actually want to get together and pray. And I want to encourage you, Hezekiah does it, Paul urges Timothy also, he says, do the same in the context of his life as a young man, be always praying, constantly praying, and let that be an encouragement to us as well. So there's this relationship, and my, one of my final examples is this. I've mentioned um, Spurgeon before. You know, there's an amazing revival in 1859, and um, God did an amazing thing through the preaching of Charles Spurgeon in particular, but he's, he puts that back to the prayer of his congregation. And I'm quoting from his diary. He says this, When I came to New Park Street Chapel, it was just a handful of people to whom I first preached. Yet I could never forget how earnestly they prayed. Sometimes they seem to plead as though they really could see the angel of the covenant present with them, as if they might have a, a blessing from him. And more than once we were also awestruck with the solemnity of the meeting that we sat for some moments while the Lord's power appeared to overshadow us, and all I could do on such occasions was to pronounce the benediction and say, Dear friends, we have had the Spirit of God manifestly here tonight. Let us go home and take care not to lose his gracious influence. From a handful of faithful praying congregations to 6,000 people a weekend in the tabernacle preaching to those people. So I think that's what Paul says when he says in 1 Thessalonians 5, he says, keep on praying. Don't give up. Don't give up. It's not that he's saying we must pray when he says pray continually. It doesn't mean that he wants us to pray forever and ever without a break. He's saying, no, don't give up in praying. Keep on at it. When you don't see the break, we first keep on praying. And I've mentioned this already, but perhaps God also would want us to pray other-centered prayer. Not self-centered prayer. 
truly longing for the glory of God to come, whether it comes upon our congregation or comes upon another congregation, that the power of God can come. And here's a, a fascinating example for you of, of something that is in our recent history. In 1975, there was a conference in the Philippines, and it was a missionary conference. 200 people left that conference with this conviction that they needed to pray for China. 1975. So they all went back to the countries, and they started praying for, for China. In fact, here in the UK, there was a movement called China Too Hard for God? Question mark. And it was a, basically a movement to try and encourage people to pray for China. And so people all over the world since 1975 have been praying for China. And what is the testimony of the last 30, 35 years? The testimony is now that there are over 100 million Christians in China. I tweeted this week a BBC article which was talking about the vast growth of the church and the vast impact of the church in China. And even the official government statistics are now in the, almost the hundreds of millions of people in China that are Christian. Doesn't that encourage you? Just people praying that God would move, and He moves. And I love uh, this thing of Brian Edwards, again, a quote. He says, prayer for revival is surely the one kind of preparation that is never wrong. <laughs> it's never wrong. It is essentially God-centered and not man-centered. It tells God that we are the end of ourselves when we begin to pray for revival. The beautiful scripture in Zechariah 12.10, and I'm going to be finished in five minutes, says this. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. Spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. There's a Puritan uh, Bible commentator that you might have heard of called Matthew Henry. And he says this on that passage. When God intends great mercy for his people, the first thing he does, he sets them to his praying. When God intends to pour out great mercy on his people, the first thing that he does, he sets them to pray. So my, my encouragement, my challenge to you and to myself this morning, are we those that are going to be found to be concerned enough with the state of the nation, with the state of this local church, with the state of his greater church, to give ourselves to the discipline of praying this year? I don't think any church, any person can expect revival unless we are praying for it, unless we are asking for it. That's what I want to go back to, James 4. We have not because we ask not. He wants to pour himself out. I'm convinced that he wants to hear from heaven and to heal our land. And the condition is, we've all quoted Chronicles, that we need to humble ourselves and seek his face, and then he will pour himself out. So, in conclusion, I want to point you to a story in 1 Samuel 14, verse 6. It's a famous story, all right? One of the many times that the Israelites and the Philistines are fighting, and Saul is still king. And what happens is Saul uh, is kind of resting under a pomegranate tree. He's kind of taking a break with some of his men under a pomegranate tree. And Jonathan, who's David's friend, his closest friend, he's got this little thing in his heart. He says, the Lord can save by many or by few. And so Jonathan decides to go up onto the hill, and they're crossing over this path between two high cliffs. He doesn't know how much of the enemy is still there. There are soldiers on both sides. So Jonathan decides, and he's, he, he, he doesn't know how many people are there, but he decides to go out into battle. And he suggests to his armor bearer, he says, we're just going to climb up here over, and we're going we're to go for it, because God God, nothing stops God from saving, whether it's from 
by many or by few. God can do something amazing. And Jonathan's author, Armabre, says these amazing words. He says, do whatever you feel to do in your heart. I'm with you, heart and soul. Some translations say it slightly differently. I am with you, heart and soul. And I have to say, that courageous act, surely we should admire that in this young man. They don't, they, they don't know what they, what's lying ahead of them. There's just these cliffs. There's the Philistine enemy. And he just says to Jonathan, I'm with you, heart and soul. And so you know the end of the story is Jonathan goes up and he fights and he kills many. And it says the armor bearer comes along behind him, killing, finishing off those that um, Jonathan has wounded. And so there is this, I said there's this relationship between leaders and congregations. And that's why I've called this message armor bearers in prayer. Because there is this relationship. The church does need leadership. It needs it needs some guidance. Of course, Jesus is our, is our high priest. We, we are focused on him. That's our commitment. There are always challenges ahead. And it's true that there are, some, there are people that are needed to go ahead and figure out what the strategy is going to be and to go ahead of the congregation. That is true. But this is also true, that leaders cannot be left to face those challenges alone. They need the help and the support of the congregation. And that's what I'm saying. When I say loyal armor bearers, that's what I'm meaning. Loyal armor bearers. People like you, people like me, are prepared to say, Jesus, we're going to follow you. And wherever the battle goes, we are with you, heart and soul, Jesus. We are going to go for it. And we know that you can bring deliverance, whether it's by many or by few. I want to say to you, there's an exciting adventure lying ahead for this church. There's an exciting adventure for this congregation. And it's going to involve much prayer. <laughs> it's going to involve much challenge. I want to say to you, it's going to involve determined, courageous, unyielding faith, unyielding prayer in the quiet place to see this church revived, to see this church become all that it can be, the thing that God always intended for it to be, a beautiful lampstand. And I want to say to you, as a leadership team, we've been meeting now for a year. We've been asking God and seeking God and saying, God, what do you have for us? We are committed as a leadership team to prayerfully go forward in a journey of the Word and the Spirit of leading this church as a team of many things that God has been speaking to us. We are committed to that. But I want to say to you, that's all well and good, and God is speaking. But I'm asking you this morning, will you be a loyal armor bearer in this church, for this church, for the sake of this church? So what does that mean? Uh, it means, are you, will, you be, will you be for this church, heart and soul? And I'm aware that there are many good churches in the world. And I'm not asking you to be an armor bearer in prayer for Hillsong. I think Hillsong is a brilliant church. I think Holy Trinity Brompton is a brilliant church. I think Soul Survivor is a brilliant church. I think I could name dozens of churches where I think they are God is doing an amazing thing with those churches. And I'm not saying we mustn't pray for other churches. I'm just asking you, are you prepared to be an armor bearer for this church, for this lampstand? We celebrate all of what God is doing all over the world. But for this church, this church, Forest Town Church, are you with her heart and soul? What does that mean? It means, will you speak well of her? <laughs> will you speak well of her? Will you love her? 
Will you give your best time to her? Will you give your money to her? <laughs> Will you prepare to financially invest in the future of this church? Are you with her heart and soul? Will you become a loyal armor bearer? Will you, in the place of prayer, in the quiet place, sometimes in the midnight hours when you cannot sleep, will you get on your knees and pray for revival for this congregation? For your friends who you know that should be here that are not here? Distracted by the things of the world all over the place. Will you give yourself in prayer? Will you give yourself in friendship? Will you give yourself in time? Will you love this church with all of your heart? Whether I don't know. I might not be here forever. Whoever leads this church, it's not about me, it's about this church, this, this bride. It's a, this church is not my idea, this church is God's idea. He birthed it before eternity. He always knew it would be here. It's a glorious lampstand. And it might not be the sexiest church, it might not be the biggest church, it might not have the best worship, the preaching might sometimes irritate you, whatever. I don't, it doesn't matter, but it's His church. Will you be an armor bearer for her?